Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Through each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone. And that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We make leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we are encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today we will be hearing from Dr. Andrew Abair. Dr. Abair is the lead pastor of Moberly Baptist Church in Longview, Texas. He is the author of Shepherding Like Jesus, returning to the wild idea that character matters in ministry. He holds a bachelor's and master's degree from Criswell College and a THM and PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Abair has served as a leader in Southern Baptist life in various roles, most recently as a member of the SBC Sex Abuse Task Force. Without further ado, Dr. Andrew Abair. Good morning. Good to see all of you. It's great to be here. It's been a few years uh, since I've been back on campus, uh, but I can just tell you very truly, um, there is not a week that goes by that my time at Chriswell doesn't come into play in my life. Uh, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as uh, someone who loves the Lord, um, Chriswell College literally influences me every single week uh, in what I do. I met and married my wife here. Uh, we had our first two children while we were here, went to school here. I think I've done just about everything you can do at Crystal College, um, but it, I, j- our time was just meaningful here. And so, uh, in fact, on the way up uh, from East Texas to Dallas today, I spent an hour on the phone with a friend uh, uh, who I met right here in chapel at Crystal College. And uh, within the last month, uh, texted Everett Berry a theology question. Uh, he is still my theology professor all of these uh, years later. And so Crystal College has just made a, a greater impact than what, I can, uh, than what I can say. Dr. Creamer, thank you for your friendship. Dr. Brooks, it's great to see you. Professor Spencer, you had the hardest classes on campus. You're still terrifying, but it's great to see you. <laughs> uh, so thankful. Uh, professor Spencer, uh, we had a, our oldest child who was just a baby, and uh, Professor Spencer was always kind to open his office to my wife uh, to be able to take care of the baby there, so just, it's a delight. Alex Gonzalez, a good friend, is here, so it's great. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and turn to the book of Ruth, and I want to share with you for a few moments from Ruth chapter 1. Is God good when life is bad? If you look around, Uh, Things look pretty bleak right now, Uh, whether it's the conflict in Ukraine, uh, tensions in the Middle East, uh, closer to home, a migrant crisis on our border, uh, rising rates of depression and suicide. Life can seem really bad at times. Amen? And maybe you yourself uh, here on a Tuesday morning in Crystal College Chapel, maybe you are experiencing something really difficult in your life right now as well. Where is God when life seems to be falling apart? 
And maybe more to the point, is God responsible for all of the bad things that are happening? I mean, if our life is bad, as sometimes it feels like it is, is, is it because God is against us? Well, that was a very relevant, pertinent question uh, in the book of Ruth. Um, I want to introduce you to a woman you're probably familiar with. It's actually not Ruth. It's, it's Naomi. And in Ruth chapter 1, even though this book is titled Ruth, the main character in the story is actually, is actually Naomi. The story is often portrayed as a love story. And in many ways, it is a love story, a love between Boaz and Ruth, the love between Ruth and Naomi. But there's more to the story. The story begins with Israel having no king and Naomi having no hope. And so I would just want you to, to see Ruth chapter 1 under a couple of different headings this morning. The first is just to get a sense of Naomi and Naomi's loss. In verse 1, if you look at Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land, and a man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. So this casts a dark setting for the story, a time when Israel was without uh, a king. Immorality was prevalent. In fact, it says it's during the time of the judges. And if you just look back one page, the last page of uh, the book of Judges tells us that the time of the judges was, was when people were doing whatever was right in their own minds, which sounds to me a lot like America in 2023. And so perhaps it was a judgment on Israel during that time. <clears throat> There's this total moral chaos. Perhaps it was a judgment. There's a famine uh, in the land. That's what we're told right here in verse 1. So there's a famine in the land. And th that's an irony in the text right here in verse 1 because uh, Elimelech and his wife Naomi are living in a, a town called Bethlehem, which those of you who are taking Hebrew right now, you know what Bethlehem means house of bread. So the house of bread is empty. There's a famine, even though you're in the place where you should have a lot of bread. And so what happens is in verses 1 and 2, the family goes down to Moab. And that's where Naomi's loss starts. The first loss that Naomi experiences in her life is the loss of her home. Every time you read Moab, you ought to say, ooh, because they're the ones wearing the black hats in the story. Moabites, uh, Moab, this is a historic enemy of Israel. And so for, for Naomi's family to move, leave Bethlehem and go down to Moab really is a shameful thing. This is a move of desperation. It's, it's leaving the promised land for a, a territory of a pagan enemy. And it, 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 it is something you do if you have no other options. And so the first thing that happens as they're experiencing this famine is that Naomi loses her, her home. She has to go to this foreign territory, Moab. But then things get worse. Not only does she lose her home, she then loses her husband. And you see that in verse 3. Look what it says right there in verse 3. Uh, it says in verse 2, her husband's name is Elimelech. They have two sons, Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. But then, then in verse 3, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. And she was just left with her two sons. So now not only has she lost her, her home, she's had to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab. Now the, 
the husband who led her down to Moab, now he kicks the bucket and dies. And she's just left with her two sons. Well, that loss is followed by another loss because her two sons, in verse 4, marry Moabite women. Ooh. And the problem isn't the fact that she has daughters-in-law now. Daughters-in-law can be a blessing. But they're Moabites now in her family. You you know, look, I'm a University of Texas Longhorns fan. I married into an Aggie family. All of my my wife went to A&M, played volleyball before she transferred to Criswell. And her parents went to A&M and met and married there. And her grandparents went to A&M and met and married there. And I'm a huge Longhorns fan. So I'm like the black sheep of the family, you know, living in enemy territory. That's the sense now. Uh, You've moved to Moab. You live in Moab, but now there's a sense in which Moab has moved into your own house. But things get even worse than that. In verse 5, her two sons, the only remaining blood relatives that she has, they die. It says Machlon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Now, we don't know why uh, those two sons died. Some commentators say, you know, that there might be an indication in the meaning of their names. Their names mean something like sickly or weak. They just may have been of poor health. But for whatever reason, she's lost her home. She's lost her husband's. Now she's had Moab move into the house. Now her sons have died. And that's significant not only because she's lost her sons, but this means a loss of heritage. It means no grandchildren. Uh, It means that not only does she have to bury her children, which no parent should have to do, but now she's going to face life without any prospects for descendants. You know that it was the hope of every Jewish woman, right, that maybe the Lord would bring the Messiah through your line. All of that's lost. So, so get the picture here. The setting of the story, Israel has no king. It's the time of the judges, everybody doing what's right in their own mind. Israel has no king. Naomi's family has no food. Now Naomi has no husband, no sons, no prospects for a descendant who would carry on her family line. And there's a sense in verse 5, it says that she was left without. You notice verse 3, it says she was left with only her two sons. Verse 5, she was left without her two sons. It's like everything has been taken from her and the one thing that she was left with, she's now left without. Her home has been taken. Her husband has been taken. She was left with just two boys left, and now even that has been taken from her. So there's this famine of food and a famine of family. I want you to see how she's feeling about things as she's experienced all of this loss. Look down at verse 13. Just skip down to verse 13. In the middle of the verse, it says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. That is Naomi's sense of God's posture towards her, that God's turned his hand of favor away from her. Look down in verses 20 and 21. This is later in the story, but she says, Call me Mara, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. 
Look at the language that she's using to describe Yahweh. She doesn't believe God's for her. She believes that God has turned against her and is opposing her and is afflicting her and has made her bitter and has taken away everything that she cared about in her life. Have you ever felt that way about the Lord? If you've not felt that way, that day may come where you feel like everything that is precious to you has been taken from you and you may even be tempted to think, God did it. This is more than a lament of her circumstances. This is actually an accusation against God's character. What she's saying is that God is the one who has done this to me. He has taken everything. I started out full. He has taken everything from me and left me empty-handed. Ellen Montgomery, who was the author of Anne of Green Gables, once wrote, my life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. Novelist Charles Bukowski said, reflecting on a really dark period in his life, he said, my beer-drunk soul is sadder than all the dead Christmas trees in the world. That's pretty sad. Can we just be honest? You gotta be in a dark place to write a sentence like that. That's where Naomi is at. I've lost everything. And God is the one who did it to me. My life is bad, and it's God's fault. So the question is, is God good when life is bad? Can I just cut to the chase and tell you, yes, he's good. That's what the text is going to tell us. So we've seen Naomi's loss, but I want you to see, I want you to see God's love for Naomi. The text is going to answer with a resounding yes. He is good, even though Naomi experientially is feeling as if God has abandoned her and not only abandoned her, but opposed and afflicted her. The story takes a turn in verse 6 and begins to show God's love and care for this Jewish widow. It begins to display in radical form the truth of Romans chapter 8 that God works how many things together? All things together. For what? For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. You know what that means in Greek? All. That's what it means. All things means God is working out everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for the good of those who love him and are called in according to his purpose. So I want you to see how God is working all things together for Naomi. God is going to provide Naomi with two things in this chapter. She feels like God has taken everything from her and left her in, empty-handed, but God provides two things for her. He provides a daughter-in-law, and he provides food. I want you to see that. Look, first of all, he provides a a daughter-in-law. Look down in verse 6. It says, She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab, now notice this, that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. So she left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. 
And Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and say, she says, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a, a new husband. And she kissed them and they wept loudly. So she's doing something very compassionate for her daughters-in-law. She's saying, I release you, right? Go find new husbands, go have a life. And they, they very compassionately say to her in verse 10, well, we insist on returning with you to your people. But she replies, well, no, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. It's almost like Naomi's expecting Ruth to go ahead and go. Everything else has left me. Why don't you go ahead and leave me as well? But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God, and where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. And may the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. So I want you just to notice here, so much I could say about this, but just notice the language of covenant, right? We read these words at weddings, at a covenant marriage ceremony, because it is covenant language. Here is a covenantally loyal daughter-in-law that God provides for Naomi, a companion who will eventually provide a kinsman redeemer for Naomi's entire family. This is one person in her life who won't leave her or forsake her. Incidentally, I think this points us forward to another who would come who would never leave or forsake his people. He would be covenantally loyal. He would never abandon his people. And here the gospel in miniature. God brings someone into Naomi's life who will always be by her side. So he brings a daughter-in-law, but he does something even more than that. The second thing that God provides for Naomi is food. This is, this is what began the problem of the story in the first place, right? Verse one, there's a famine in the land. Well, look at what God does. In verses 19 through 22, God brings Naomi and Ruth now back to the house of bread to Bethlehem, and he brings them at a perfect moment. Look down at verses 19, and we're going to read all the way through the rest of the chapter. Verse 19, it says, the two of them traveled until they came to the house of bread, right? Bethlehem. And when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women explained, exclaimed, can this be Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. And I read verse 21, but skip down to verse 22. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. Now here's what I want you to key in on. Look at the last phrase. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of what? What does it say in your Bibles right there? At the beginning of the barley harvest. Now that little feature is really important, right? The, the chapter begins with a famine in the land. Naomi loses everything as she goes to Moab to try to find food, but now God brings her back and in verse 22, the sun begins to come up over the horizon. Hope is on the way. If the story is beginning with hunger, it's ending with harvest. 
If the story is beginning with deep loss, it's ending with God's love and care for this Jewish widow to bring her just to the place that she needs at just the right time to provide exactly the thing that she was looking for. And what's amazing to me is that God provides for her both what she knew that she needed, food, and what she didn't know that she needed, a covenantally loyal daughter-in-law. She didn't recognize this, of course. Right in verse 21, she's still saying, God has done all this stuff to me. Her posture in Ruth chapter one is marked by lack of trust. Her blinded perspective, just bitter negative Nancy, right? She's kind of like the Eeyore of the story. Like, woe is me, God's forgotten about, God hates me. She doesn't realize that God has been at work the entire time to provide for her exactly what she needed. She missed the little clue that you and I have in verse six, that the Lord was paying attention to his people. From Naomi's perspective, it felt like God didn't see her. The narrator helps us to have a divine perspective. The Lord was watching. The Lord was paying attention. The Lord had not forgotten about her and her need, and there's a hidden hand of God's providence at work in the story, bringing, yes, even through unusual means, Moabite daughters-in-law. Thank you. All right, thank you. Ooh. How could God use Moabite daughters-in-law, for goodness sake? And yet that's exactly the means that God uses. And then he brings her to the place of harvest at just the right time for the barley harvest. God has been at work the whole time. There is the hand of providence at work, even though from a human perspective, she felt like she was totally forgotten by God, but God had not forgotten her. Isn't his love for us amazing? In those moments when we feel like our life is bad, and God has not only forgotten about us, but he's the one behind all the bad things. It's not true. God had not forgotten her. Listen, let me just encourage you, Criswell community, with this truth. God, God has a way of bringing our broken stories full circle. I mean, Na- Naomi's story, if it's, it's interesting. If you just read this as a work of literature, the parallelism that happens in the book of Ruth is fascinating. The story begins with a departure from Bethlehem. It ends with a return to Bethlehem. The story begins in famine. It ends in fullness. It begins with hunger. It ends in hope. It begins with the loss of a husband, sons, daughter-in-law who leaves her. But it ends with the provision of Ruth. But then through Ruth, a kinsman redeemer named Boaz, right? But, but that's actually not the end of the story because through Ruth and Boaz, you're gonna have a seed, Obed. And it would be through Obed that King David would come. And it would be through the line of David that the Davidic Messiah would come. All of this while Naomi is saying, God is against me. And the whole time the Lord is working every circumstance in her life, not only to provide bread for Naomi, a husband for Ruth, an heir for Naomi, a king for Israel, eventually in David, but ultimately how God provides a king for the world named Jesus. All through this difficult circumstance. And the king that he would eventually bring 
would demonstrate his love by being covenantally loyal to the point of death on a cross. And then he'd rise from the dead so he could offer us the bread of life. So if your life today feels bad and maybe a little out of control, just remember the story isn't over. And you can trust God even when you can't see his hand at work. There's a little hint to this at the beginning of the story. In the first verse, uh, verse two verses, we're, we're told Naomi's husband's name, Elimelech. Elimelech. This is happening in the time of the judges where Israel has no king, but Elimelech's name, you know what it means, right? My God is king. So there's a clue, even from the second verse, that even though Israel has no king, Naomi feels like she has no hope, the narrator of the story just includes detail after detail that shows that God is king and he has not vacated his throne. So things may feel out of control today, but God is working all things together for the good of those who love him by bringing a kinsman redeemer who will put the world to rights. And there is coming a day when our kinsman redeemer will return and make all things new, when our hunger will become hope, when our famine will become filling, when our brokenness will become blessing. And so until that day, we trust. Can I close with just a couple of verses from a gospel song that I've really appreciated over the years? Babby Mason, um, took a line from Spurgeon and put it into a form of a gospel song. She said this, all things work for our good. Though sometimes we don't see how they could. Struggles that break our hearts in two sometimes blind us to the truth. Our Father knows what's best for us. His ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim and you just don't see him, remember you're never alone. God is too wise to be mistaken. He is too, ki- too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Let's bow together. Lord, we are thankful that when life seems chaotic and things seem out of control, Lord, that you are on the throne. We're thankful for your provision. Uh, In this story, we see it for Naomi, but it points us forward to how you would provide for us in Christ. So we just say thank you for your love for us. Help us to trust you even when we can't see your hand at work. Lord, I pray for students who are here today and some of them may not know how they're gonna pay for school. They're not gonna, not sure how they're gonna pass that class. They're not gonna, not sure how they're gonna make all the ends meet and graduate and they're really struggling today or maybe there's something in their personal life where life has gone bad. Lord, I pray that you would help them to trust in your goodness and in your sovereignty in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' good name, amen. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell Chapel podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.